Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1, uh, 1 through 3. Those are the chapters that are going to be our text this morning. I want to state up front that our text today will not be easy to read. There will be sensitive language and mature themes. But more importantly, we're going to encounter an extraordinarily challenging narrative. And this is something that's going to be really hard for us to hear, but I think it's going to be something that's necessary for us to hear. Now, it's not going to be hard in the sense of a, you know, a difficult math problem. As long as you know the theory, you can solve it. But this passage is going to be hard in the sense of, Lord, I'm struggling with this sin, and I just can't seem to overcome it. Or hard in the sense of wanting to live as a faithful Christian believer in a world that always seems to disdain the Christian faith. Or even yet, hard in the sense of being hurt by those whom you love the most. The story this morning we're going to read is a love story. Now, what comes to mind when you think of that phrase, a love story? Perhaps you think of the Disney story, Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty, my favorite. Uh, Romeo and Juliet. Maybe you think of Taylor Swift before she did pop. Whatever it is, what will likely come to mind is a story of two lovers, star-crossed lovers, attempting to overcome external forces and obstacles in pursuit of one another, whether it's overbearing relatives, family interests, wicked witches, magic spells, whatever it is. But our text today talks about a different kind of love story. It's one that doesn't pit star-crossed lovers against some external force, but star-crossed lovers against each other. It involves the, the tragedy of infidelity and the grievous consequences that will follow. And such is the story of Hosea, a prophet whose own love life will serve to dramatize for us the relationship between the ultimate lover and an adulterous people. Now, who is Hosea? Hosea is the first of what we would call the minor prophets, not minor in the sense of, uh, of they are somehow lesser or their content is less important, but minor in the sense of that their books ascribed to these prophets are shorter in length than the books ascribed to the major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Hosea, then, is an important piece of the puzzle of Old Testament prophetic history. He ministered in a time when the nation of Israel was really two nations, divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Hosea ministered primarily to the northern kingdom, which was then under the reign of King Jeroboam. And during that time, the nation flourished. There was great prosperity, relative peace. Yet under that veil, there was also a deep deficiency of devotion to the Lord. Corruption was rampant, and there was a spiritual bankruptcy that plagued the nation, all of which was just the precipice of a decline leading to Israel ultimately being conquered by the Assyrian Empire. 
And so you can kind of see why God chose to raise up prophets during this time. And it seems like a constant theme throughout these Old Testament prophecies where you have an extremely wayward and idolatrous people going astray and the subsequent rebuke and judgment by God that is forewarned by the prophets. Hosea here is no different. In this book, he prophesies to Israel to warn them of the harsh reality of what happens when you turn from God. As I said earlier, the content of our passage will be difficult. It will be hard. It will be heavy. As it illustrates Israel's idolatry, it illustrates Israel's adultery, but through the very real and very raw example of Hosea's marriage. Yet the grit and the grime that's ever present in our passage this morning, it's there for a reason. It's there to reveal what true love is and the riches of Christ's grace for his people. Now there is some theological debate over whether or not the story of Hosea is a truly literal story or whether maybe it's simply a, a figurative story and some would argue that it would be unbecoming of a prophet to wed an, adul an adulterous wife and that this wife must thus be figurative for Israel. Others argue that only a literal marriage between Hosea and his wife can symbolize the literal relationship between God and the Jewish people. Now, whichever viewpoint is right doesn't really matter. What matters is that this passage is ultimately revealing to us how God deals with his people, people whom he has covenanted to, people who he has pledged to love. So while in Hosea, we indeed have the nation of Israel in mind as our primary context, what we really have to do is see the application for us as Christians today, living as members of the church and as we have Hosea's marriage modeling for us the relationship between God and Israel, we also have the parallel of the marital union modeling for us the relationship between Christ and the church as Paul reveals to us in Ephesians 5. Now I titled this morning's sermon, From Heaven He Came and Solder. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Does anyone recognize that? It's a, it's a line from the, the great hymn, The Church is One Foundation. And I'm going to read the entire stanza here. It reads as such, The church is one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he brought her, and for her life he died. This hymn is about the great Redeemer. It's about Jesus Christ seeking out for himself a bride and purchasing her with the price of his own blood so that she would be a new creation, a holy bride. And what we have here is an eternal love story clothed in the language of marriage. It's perhaps one of the most beautiful illustrations to behold. And I hope to demonstrate this morning how this very great love is foreshadowed in great detail for us and the seemingly tragic story of Hosea. So if you're not already there, please turn with me to Hosea 1. We're going to read here chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, 
The Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord, their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. The circumstances of which we read here are unmistakably tragic. We're told of Hosea and God's instruction for him to take a wife of whoredom, in other words, an adulterous wife, and to see the, the resounding enmity that arises because of her sin. And firstly, it's important for us to understand why on earth would the Lord even have Hosea marry an adulterous woman, this, this wife of whoredom. And it's because we see here that it is because the land that is Israel commits whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now this is a peculiar prophetic vehicle. We often think of uh, prophets as messengers, don't we? You know, God writes the message down and he delivers the message to the prophet and, and the messenger delivers the message and the messenger's like, don't kill the messenger for what's inside the content of the, the message. But God here doesn't just have some stern words for Hosea to pass along to Israel. What he wants to do is symbolize the prophetic call in the form of Hosea's own marriage. And we're meant to see how Hosea's dealings with an unfaithful, adulterous wife is meant to paint a portrait of God's dealings with an unfaithful people. And so Hosea takes for himself Gomer, a, a wife who we can reason was initially faithful to Hosea, but then ultimately forsakes him through her adulterous pursuits. And, and we can infer that because we read of these three children mentioned here, all of whom are conceived from Gomer, but the Bible only tells us that it is this first child, Jezreel, that is explicitly from Hosea. And so I want us to pay special attention to the names of these three children, which carry their own prophetic weight in revealing God's attitude toward those who are adulterous and idolatrous. Okay, so the first child we see here conceived from both Hosea and, and Gomer is to be named Jezreel which literally means God scatters. And there is some debate among theologians regarding the context of that name. But we do know this, that Jezreel was a physical place in Israel that had a long history of conflict. And oftentimes that conflict was between those who were faithful to the Lord and between those who were idolatrous and succumbed to idolatry and adultery, particularly Baal worship. And so immediately the name of Hosea's very firstborn child spells trouble. We're given a portrait 
of tension and conflict, and it sets up for us the ensuing judgment that is to come through God's dealings with the unfaithful. Now, after Jezreel, Gomer has two more children. And again, neither child is explicitly mentioned as having been born to Hosea. And so here we already have some evidence that Hosea has begun, or Gomer has begun to, to stray. And with her adultery comes the consequence in the form of a prophetic judgment that God issues upon the names of these two children. And, and we, we look at these names, uh, no mercy, not my people. And, and I think we're prone to say, well, that's pretty terrible. It's not fair to, to the kids to name them these horrible things. They don't deserve it. But that's exactly the point here. They do deserve it. By their very nature, they are called children of whoredom, conceived from adultery and wickedness. And there's plenty of evidence to suggest that these children were as just as much led into their mother's sinful ways as she was. So these names aren't just a prophetic judgment. They're also indicative of what Gomer and her offspring deserved. We look at the, the, the second child here, No Mercy, um, literally lo ruhama in the Hebrew, lo ruhama, which, which means she has not received mercy. And when we think of this child of whoredom and, and think of the consequence of Gomer's sin, we have to understand that this name, no mercy, is what the child deserves. The child deserves no mercy. And Hosea has every reason to withhold his mercy from a child that is the direct result of his wife's unfaithfulness. And uh, Hosea mentions something here, very interesting here, in, in verse 6 and 7, saying how there is to be mercy on the house of Judah, but not mercy on the house of Israel. And, and I think what Hosea is, is really drawing attention to is the fact that God still saves. He still preserves a remnant of his people, and that the means of salvation Notice here, it is not by bow or sword or war or horses or horsemen, but it is completely because of God. And, and, and for those who for do receive mercy, it's not something that they deserve, but it's something that they're given. Notice this, you'd never deserve mercy. You only ever are given it. To deserve mercy is, is an oxymoron. You can't deserve mercy. Because by its nature, it's not something we deserve. We look at the name of the second child here in, in verse 8 and 9. Not my people, literally translated lo ami from the Hebrew, lo ami. Now this is an actual reality for Hosea. This is not my child. I am not its father. I have no relationship with him. I have no union with him, no, no covenantal or parental bond that I would be able to share with this child. Now, parents, have you ever taken home the wrong kid from the hospital or picked up the wrong kid from school? Probably not, right? But if you ever did, would you be like driving along and you, you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, you're not my kid. Well, that's okay. Come home with me anyway, right? No, you don't say that. You go, I'm turning right back around and... and and putting you back where I found you. <laughs> and, and Hosea didn't just pick the wrong kid up. He, here, here is a, a bastard child born out of his wife's 
unfaithfulness. And Hosea has every right to be angry, to declare, lo, Ami, you are not my people. You are not my child. And such was what Israel, the people of God, deserved. Yes, God had rescued them out of Egypt. Yes, he had promised them a great inheritance and a land and a great future. Yet their adultery and their wickedness meant that they were deserving of nothing less than being completely cut off from the very God who saved them. The Lord has every right to say what he does here in verse 9. Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Here's the stunning and tragic reality of this. No mercy not my people. These are just monikers that could be easily applied to us. Like the children of whoredom, like the wayward Israelites, we once thumbed our noses at God and repudiated his love, telling him that we do not need him. Leave me alone, God. And it reveals to us the true nature of who we really were, sons of disobedience, as Paul describes in Ephesians 2. Just like the children of whoredom, just like the Israelites, we deserve no mercy. We deserve to be called not God's people. And yet, in spite of all that bad news, in spite of who we really are in our sin, in our filth, in our grime, there's a a yet in in verse 10, which we're going to read in a little bit. A yet. It's, It's like Hosea's equivalent of but God, that great term that shows up over and over again in Scripture that heralds the coming of good news in a sea of bad, when it's bad news and bad news and bad news and but God, and, and we're given hope suddenly. It's the turning point where all seems lost. But then the Savior God comes to the rescue of his people. And the passage here is no different. As we're jolted by the despair of Gomer's adultery and her wicked idolatry and the judgment that she is to receive upon her and her children, God finally brings to us a true saving grace. And let's read here in verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Despite the fact that the people of Israel don't deserve a shred of mercy and deserve only to be cut up from God, Hosea issues a a prophetic promise here that the descendants of Israel will be innumerable and that instead of being called not my people, lo ami, they get a new name, children of living God. It's like 180. How does God go from saying no mercy, not my people, to saying children of the living God? And we're like, how did, did God change his mind? Did he, did he suddenly decide that, that he would have compassion and mercy? No. God is immutable. He's unchanging. He wasn't swayed by anyone's opinion. But what, what's happening here is this. 
through Hosea, God is telling his people, though this is what you deserve, no mercy, not my people, this instead is what you're going to receive, children of the living God. And that's only the beginning. The verses here at the end of chapter 1 are just a, a small foreshadow of the ultimate redemption that's going to come later on in this story. So let us read here in chapter 2. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For the mother has played the whore, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Now, the beginning part of this chapter continues to build off the promise that we left off with in chapter 1. That there is hope for redemption, and that God will remember his people. A remnant. Look here in verse 1. You are my people. Literally, Ami in Hebrew. The, it, what's been dropped is that lo in the, the negative prefix in Hebrew, lo, which means not. Instead of lo, Ami, not my people, it is now Ami. You are my people. And then again, you have received mercy, Ruhama in Hebrew. No longer lo, Ruhama, but now Ruhama indicating a very significant name change from no mercy to mercy, not my people, to my people. And what I'm reminded of is the, the redemption motif that appears over and over again in the Bible, from this to that, from this to that, death to life, darkness to light, perdition to righteousness, reprobation to glorification. And it's this redemptive promise that undergirds Hosea's call for repentance, and here in verse 2, it's where it gets hard again. He urges to the children, plead with your mother that she turn away from her whoring ways and her adultery. And I think it's important for us to look more carefully at the nature of Gomer's sin and, and how it reflects both the, the spiritual state of Israel at that time as well as our own hearts now. Now, Hosea tells us that in spite of the marriage covenant made with Gomer, she's run after lovers, playing the whore, and in so doing, reaped material benefits like bread and water, wool, flax, oil, and drink. And what we're led to believe here is that not only was Gomor blinded by her lust, she was also blinded by her greed for wealth and possessions and security, all things that she thought were provided by her lovers. And in this prophetic paradigm, this is God calling out to an unfaithful Israel, a people who had strayed far and had forsaken their Lord God. And all the while, they were so oblivious to their own waywardness. They were content to bask in their nation's peace and prosperity, assuming that if all was well, then their spiritual condition must be okay too. But while Israel reveled in these unseemly political alliances and the entertainment of Baal worship and, and false gods and idols, they forgot it was the Lord God 
who sustained their peace. It was the Lord God who propped up their economy. It was the Lord God who kept delivering the crops and food, who made them prosperous. And in so doing, the, Lord, the, the Israelites abandoned the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And they put plenty of gods before the Lord God. And they fold under the influence of the Gentile nations around her. I think there's a, a, a poignant reminder for us living as Christians today. The world's influence around us is incredibly alluring. It promises success, riches, wealth, fame, glory. But only you would just yield here or yield there. And this is particularly relevant for us in America today as we have enjoyed tremendous prosperity. And what we tend to do is often make the mistake that, ah, look at these material blessings that we've been giving. Things must be going well. The Lord must have his favor upon us. And we use that as a barometer for our own spiritual faithfulness when nothing could be further from the truth. And if we find our comfort and our hope and our security and our trust to be in our bank accounts or our investment portfolios or online profiles or relationships, then have we not made gods and put them before the, the true living God? Are we not as guilty as Israel of breaking the first commandment? Are we not as unfaithful and adulterous as Gomer was? Gomer's sin drives Hosea to plead with Israel, to plead with them, to turn away from their adultery or else face the consequence of judgment. And here Hosea challenges us with rather explicit language to indicate the harshness with which he would respond to Gomer. Here in, in verse 3, that he would strip her naked, making her as in the day she was born. And, and Hosea, as the faithful husband here, wields the right to rescind everything that he has given to Gomer, his wife. And, and this imagery of stripping is, is to show us how he had the right to withhold the provision and security and, and specifically clothing from his wife. And in that moment, we're given a pointer to how the husband is meant to be a, a spiritual covering for his wife, just as, as God provided the material to cover Adam and Eve as they found themselves in their naked state. God killed these animals so that he could create this clothing to cover Adam and Eve, the first, one of the first instances of the gospel. And it further points to Jesus as a covering for his bride, the church, and how he protects them from the wrath and judgment that we rightly deserve. But it's a covering given out of grace. It's not our merit. And as Hosea had every right to strip the covering he's provided for Gomer, God too reserves the right to remove it from us. Hosea's siren blast to Israel to warn them of the impending judgment that God rightfully had upon them should they remain unrepentant, it leads all to this. That if the story ended here, we could, we, we could say that, um, that if, if Hosea rightly punished his wife and, and God rightly punished Israel and that's the end of the story, we could see that that is actually a just ending. Perhaps not a, not a happy ending, but a just ending because the transgressors would be getting what they deserve. 
justice would be meted out. God would have, had, would have every right to put down the pen then and say, well, the end. They lived justly ever after. But the story doesn't end there. The threat of judgment gives way to a course of redemption, a plan that God takes to redeem his people. And this is going to be remarkable here as we read on. And I, I want you to pay special attention to, to three therefores, therefores that I want you to, to notice indicating God's plan for Israel. Let's read on here in verse 6. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was much better, better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished upon her silver and gold, which they used for bail. The first, therefore, we see here is one of discipline, okay? Where God pledges to block Israel's way with thorns and a wall so that Israel can't find her path, so that when she strays, she doesn't know where she's going and she can't find her lover's. Her attempts to pursue them are met with futility, and in her futility, she remembers her husband, her true love, her first and only love. And Israel, in its futility to worship Baal and all these other false idols, would remember their God, the God who delivered them out of Egypt and to whom they sang in Exodus 15, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. That is their first love. And for the modern reader, this sounds rather incomprehensible. It's almost like the way a child should be disciplined, thorns and hedges and walls. It's like a timeout or being grounded, or taking away the car keys, or the phone, or whatever it is, whatever disciplines that you parents have these days. And uh, in our modern mentality, we might think, well, why use the stick when you can dangle the carrot? Why would you, you know, use all these disincentives to get them to love and appreciate you when you could provide incentives for them to do just that? But what this really is here is an act of grace, okay? And we don't usually put discipline and grace hand in hand, but this is exactly what it is, a gracious kind of discipline, gracious discipline done for Israel's good, a discipline that blocks out the wicked and alluring ways of temptation around us. And so as wickedness has been blockaded from us, we might rest and remember who our true lover is. And we're pointed to, to Proverbs 3 where it says, The Lord reproves or disciplines him whom he loves. He does it out of love. Because then we read here in verses 7 and 8 of Israel's response, I will go and return to my first husband. It was better for me then than now. And, um, and, and God comments that here in verse 8 that it was... He, all along, it was he who had provided the grain and the wine and the oil and, and the very things that, that Gomer and Israel thought were from her lovers. These things that she had just taken for granted, these material blessings that she thought, thank you lovers for providing them for me. They were all along from God. 
from the husband, the faithful husband. And verse 8 tells us that Israel did not know. They're, they're completely unaware that it was because of the Lord's providence that these things were provided. And here's the real tragedy. Israel recycled that wealth back in the form of offerings to Baal and the false gods. It says here, all, all the silver and gold lavished upon her, which they used for Baal. It's like a slap in the face of God. It's, it's, it's like them turning their way, turning their backs to him. And so God here is, despite the fact that he's the true provider, they don't recognize it. And meanwhile, the faithful one, the faithful husband, relentlessly pursues his bride so that she would remember her true provider, her true lover. You see, kids, um, for those of you in high school or 18 and below, the point of you being grounded isn't so that you can have your fun taken away, okay? It's for you to remember who it really is who provides for you, who it really is who loves you. And so the next time you're grounded, next time you're grounded, tell your parents thank you, okay? Because that's an act of grace upon you. Tell them thank you. You won't regret it, trust me. Let's read on here in, in verse 9 for our second therefore. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them, and I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. The second therefore in this plan of redemption is again one of discipline, where God withholds the resources which he had once given so freely and graciously upon Israel. And just before, as we read of Hosea's right to strip his wife bare and to withhold from her his provision and security, the Lord's stern discipline in this case threatens to cripple Israel's economy and livelihood, neutralizing their ability to partake in these false religious and ceremonial practices and in these offerings to Baal. And the wool and the flax and the vines and the fig trees, all these staple crops in Israel would be decimated to remind Israel that she was truly God's. It was not Baal that was her God. It would be to remind her that what she thought these false gods had given her was really provided by the living God and in so doing, God would take away all the means for these idolatrous practices, these feasts and these new moons and these Sabbaths. God's disciplining hand here is meant to underscore the true work of redemption, that if Israel would be left with nothing, then they might finally see who their true redeemer was. I think the application here speaks for itself well. Sometimes we're in, our, in our, our idolatry too deep. And in that moment, God 
and his sovereign intervention not only takes away our pursuit of those idols, but he might just take away everything else, everything good, our jobs, our homes, our security, our relationships, our possessions, if and only if it would drive us to see that we have nothing but Christ and that all we have truly is Christ. One tragic statistic that I've heard is that uh, during the Great Recession, some 10,000 people committed suicide. That's tragic, and it's hard for us to hear. And we hear of these anecdotal reports of, of bankers and people of stature and, and fame, and they put everything into their, their investments and their, and their possessions, and they lost so much of it only to end their own lives. And I can't think and imagine how terrible it would be if we put so much stock in those things that if we were to lose them, we would consider ending our own lives. And in this removal of resources, it, it may sound harsh, and we might protest against God, well, God, you can't do that. You can't take away what's mine. But let me tell you right now that you don't want the alternative that Paul describes for us in Romans 1, when God gave them over. God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. He gave them over to their dishonorable passions. He gave them over to a debased mind. And at that point, God would say, fine, have at it, do what you want. We don't want that. God pulling us back from our sin in our pursuit of idolatry is an act of utter grace meant for us to cry out, all I have is Christ. And in that great hymn we sang earlier, Come Thou Found, where it says, He to rescue me from danger. God is calling out, danger, danger, stay away from the fire. He pulls us back. It is for our own good, an act of grace and mercy, that God would save us from our own wickedness. We own nothing. Even our lives are not our own and sometimes God just needs to remind us of that so that we would remember who it is we really live for. Lastly, let's read of our final therefore here in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will make her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down. In safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow for herself so her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say you are 
my God. After the first two therefores, these acts of what I call gracious discipline, God reveals third and final therefore. Therefore, I will allure her. I will redeem her. Through the prophet Hosea, God reveals the consummation of this redemptive plan. That all this discipline was not for naught, but for the purpose of restoring the union between husband and wife, God and Israel. And we read here of God's redemptive discipline and that through it all, Israel comes back running to the Lord, remembering the time when God had delivered her out of Egypt. And I want us to pay special attention to the name changes in this passage. I love name changes. These are the special nuggets of gospel truth in the Bible. And they're kind of subliminal. They're not obvious to us immediately. But when we see what happens when God changes the name of a person, it's, it's grace, it's truth, it's redemption. And then we see here in verse 16, no longer does Israel call God my, my Baal. And, 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 and no longer he calls, do they call God my Baal as if he were just another God among God, gods? Now Israel remembers her first love, her only God. Calling her my, calling him my husband. And the Lord in his faithfulness removes the names of Baals and, and the names of the idols from her mouth so that Israel would forget all her adulterous ways. And here at the end of the chapter in verse 23, those great name changes, we see the fulfillment of what was promised here earlier at the end of chapter one. To the child, no mercy, once lo ruhama, lo being not, not having received mercy, God says, I will have mercy, Ruhama. And to the child, not my people, lo Ami, he says, Ami, you are my people. And as, as we think about that, no mercy to mercy, not my people to you are my people. And we think of all those other great name changes in scripture, from Simon to Peter, from Saul to Paul, Abram to Abraham, and we're pointed to the redemptive nature of these changes, just as God has redeemed his people from who they once were to who they are now, when we went from being sons of disobedience who deserved wrath and judgment to being sons of God who received grace and mercy. And even in the obscurity of a Jewish prophet here in the 8th century, Hosea, we see the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how despite our utter rebellion and our fish shaking in, in telling God we don't want him in our desperate pursuit of things that he abhors, he still faithfully and relentlessly pursues undeserving people like you and me. Get that. We do not deserve his pursuit. We do not deserve his love or his mercy or his grace. And day by day, we find ourselves unfaithful, transgressing against him, pursuing things and putting gods before him. And yet he says, I will pursue you for you are my people. And how do the people of Israel respond here? They don't respond reluctantly or tepidly or half-heartedly like the childhood recipient of a Valentine who thought it was really cute. Aw, thanks. Thanks, God. No, what they say is, you are my God, 
And we're reminded of Jeremiah 31, where they shall be my people and I shall be their God. And we see here Israel repents back to God. They turn around, their love for him completely restored. And you see, the beauty of the gospel is not merely that God pursues us, but that he takes and transforms us into that holy bride, that holy nation, the royal priesthood. And so often in this world today, we buy into the lie. Well, a truly loving God just accepts you for who you are. Just come as you are and, and, and stay there. God will, will accept you. But what this story tells us is that God doesn't just accept us for who we are because who we are is not a good place to be. It's a place of sin and, and hostility and rebellion. And God lifts us out of, out of that and says, I will not accept you for who you are. I will accept you for who I want you to be, my holy bride, a people called out to proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ. And, and, and here we see such a beautiful picture of, of Israel's repentance. And here is the groundwork being laid for the conclusion of Hosea's story and the redemption of his own wife. Let us read on here in chapter 3 for that conclusion. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many, many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar or ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of, of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And in this final chapter of our text, we're plunged back into the story of Hosea and Gomer. God instructs Hosea to find Gomer, find her, pursue her, and literally redeem her to purchase her back. And as the text suggests, Gomer has likely fallen so far into adultery that she has been led into slavery. James Boyce, in his commentary on the Minor Prophets, paints a picture of what may have likely happened here. That is, Gomer deserted Hosea and ran after lover and lover. She found that her provision became less and less until the point where she saw that her lovers really wanted her not for who she was. They only wanted her for, for lust. And these were frauds who could not provide. Frauds who, who wanted only to, to enjoy her for their own sakes, not to truly love her. And at the end here, in her desperation to survive, Gomer sells herself off in the slavery. Standing there in the marketplace, likely with little to no clothes on, in her frailty, and her nakedness, and her vulnerability. And here God gives Hosea the opportunity to seize her back and tells him to buy her for the price of 15 shekels, a homer and lectic of barley, about nine bushels total. And so Hosea goes and purchases her, paying a price to redeem her as his bride. And as he does so, we can imagine what happens here. That instead of stripping her naked, which he had the right to do, as we saw earlier, instead of doing that, he clothes her. 
He provides a covering for her that embodies the protection that a husband would have for his wife. And that instead of yelling at her and saying, how dare you, he speaks gently to her, alluring her and verbally renewing the covenant made with her that she would be his, not belonging to another, but to him only. I'm reminded again of that beautiful stanza and the church is one foundation from heaven. He came and sought her to be his holy bride with his own blood. He sought her, he bought her. And for her life, he died. Like Hosea, seeking his bride and buying her with a price, Jesus, too, seeks out his church, but pays the ultimate price, the price of his own blood and his own life, so that the people would repent and turn to him in worship. I love the way chapter 3 ends here in verses 4 and 5. This is very interesting. Notice here. Israel dwells many days without king or prince, sacrifice, and on and on. And it indicates that they're just kind of wandering around aimlessly. They didn't have a god. They didn't have a king. No leader. But through God's redemption of them and their repentance, they return and seek the Lord. And notice what it says here. They seek their Lord, their God, in verse 5. And what else? David, their king. Hmm, David their king, that's kind of peculiar. Well, I thought David at this point, not only was he not king, he's been long dead for some 200 years. What does it mean that they would seek David their king? But this is actually a historically significant prophecy. And the whole reason why the northern kingdom of Israel split off from the southern kingdom in the first place was because of the rejection of the Davidic dynasty. In 1 Kings 12, 19, it says that Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this very day. And yet here, Hosea prophesies that Israel will return to God. And the culmination of that is going to be in the form of honoring David as their king. And in so doing, honoring his house and the kingship that will come through his descendants. And the ultimate king that will come in the form of their future Messiah, Jesus Christ who will save and redeem Israel. Hosea's purchase and redemption of Gomer is where our love story ends. It could have ended much sooner, right? Hosea could have rightly taken a certificate of divorce and said, well, I'm done with that. I don't want to deal with her any longer. He could have cut off his adulterous wife completely, and he would have been in his right to do so. It would have been the just thing to do. And even in our world today, That move would have been applauded. But Hosea puts his foot on the ground and he says, that's my wife. I don't want her back. It doesn't matter what she's done or who she's given herself to. I'm going to pursue her to the ends of the world until I get her back. And once I do, I'm going to pour out my love and my mercy upon her and I'm going to cherish her and she's going to cherish me. And at the conclusion of our text here, instead of, it, instead of an ending of justice, we get an ending of mercy. We get an ending of love and grace. Only such is the love of God who is always in relentless pursuit of his people. This morning, if you find yourself straying, if you find yourself engaging in idolatries and false idols, 
and seeking after things that are not God and putting those things before him, remember that God is calling out to you, back to himself. He is relentlessly pursuing you despite your unfaithfulness. God is faithful. Where we have failed, he has succeeded. And he has called to you to repent and turn from your wicked ways so that you would come back to him. You would see your first love and say, you are my God. You are my husband. Let's pray. Father God, in these three chapters of Hosea, we're reminded deeply of who we are and what we deserve. We're reminded, no mercy, not my people. That's who we were. That's what we deserve. We don't deserve your mercy. We don't deserve your favor to be called your children. And through your act of sovereign grace, you pulled us out of the pit and told us, no, you are my people. No, you have received mercy. And we're fast-forwarded to that moment on the cross as Jesus is hung there and he takes upon the wrath and judgment that we deserved that no mercy and he takes it upon himself so that he would shield us, he would cover us. As Hosea comes back and covers Gomer, and we see your love and your covering for Israel, and what an astounding act of grace, a marvelous act of love and mercy. And Lord, we can't help but praise you for it, because what we are now, Lord, is is we're your bride, a holy bride, a special people that have been called out, for you. Father God, this morning I pray for anyone in our midst who may be struggling in the midst of their sin, who may feel that they have strayed for far too long, or perhaps they've never known you, Lord. Would they hear this truth, hear your faithfulness, hear your covenant love, which cannot be broken, hear of the goodness and the grace and the mercy that you pour out on your people through your son, Jesus Christ. Let them come before you and let them worship you and say, you are my God. We pray all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.